Welcome back to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society, part of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Lance Thurner. Today I'm going to be speaking with Professor Matthew O'Hara about his new book, The History of the Future in Colonial Mexico, out from Yale University Press, 2018. This book examines the experience of time and future planning in colonial Latin America and how this experience changed over three centuries of Spanish rule. Rather than finding an orientation towards the future disseminating from modern Europe, O'Hara uncovers a unique culture of time in which tradition and change were mutually constructive. Without further ado, I'm very pleased to be sharing with you today my interview with Professor Matthew O'Hara. So, Matt, uh, welcome to the show. Thanks, Lance. Thanks for the invitation. So this book is such an interesting and uh, unique look at colonial Latin American history. I'd like you to start by explaining a little bit how you came to this project and how it developed out of your prior work. Sure. Well, thanks, Lance. And first, let me say thank you for again for the invitation. Um, podcasts have become such an important way that we learn about new work that I appreciate the chance to talk a little bit about this project and um, and thank you for your work putting these together. Um, so h- how I came to work on this project, I guess like a lot of historians, our projects tend to develop out of the things that we're encountering in the archives. And often when we find something that is a bit of a puzzle or a paradox and we don't fully understand, it keeps drawing our our attention. And that was the case for this project. And also, you know, a lot of times we're working on one project and we come across something in the archive that, again, is interesting and intriguing or we don't quite understand, but it doesn't quite fit in the project that we're working on. And so we tend to put these files together for the next thing. And in my case, I came across a series of documents in Mexico's National Archive, which is located in Mexico City. And they described religious brotherhoods, which had been a part of my my previous book. And that's what drew me to them initially. But there was something about these documents that, again, was puzzling to me and, and didn't quite fit with how I understood the period that I was working on. In this case, they were documents describing 18th century Mexico. And they talked about the founding of a number of religious organizations. And their entire ethos was about individual self-improvement and individual productivity. And for them in the 18th century, that meant not just economic productivity, which was a part of it, but also what they understood to be spiritual productivity and efficiency, which meant salvation. And so um, that's consistent with a lot of things that we're seeing happening in the 18th century not just in Mexico, but in other places. But what intrigued me about these texts in particular was that the way they were trying to achieve those ends was through very traditional methods. Um, So religious practices of flagellation, lashing of the flesh, collective prayer, collective monitoring of each other's activities. And so it, it created this kind of odd juxtaposition of things that were on the one hand very tradition-oriented, and in some ways looking towards the past, and then other things that were intensely oriented on the future. And I realized I couldn't fully make sense of these these institutions and the people who were involved with them if I was looking at this material with the frameworks that um, that I'd learned about in my training as a Latin Americanist, um, and that I needed to kind of apply a different lens to the material. 
And the lens that I ended up adopting, which became the, the focus of the whole book, was thinking about how people engage the future and trying to write a history of the future. And why, why this idea of a history of the future? I mean, how does this really change our perception of this period and I guess of colonial history generally? Sure. I think um, this will probably be familiar to Latin Americanists and colonial Latin Americanists in particular, but we've spent a lot of time in our field thinking and writing about the way that the past plays a really big role in Latin American history. Um, you know, the idea that historical memory is very intense, that these are societies that can um, have extremely strong traditions and can be very tradition oriented. And while that's all true, what I was encountering were people who were also intensely future oriented, focused on not only their present, but on what was to come and not only in religious, but in material terms as well. And so shifting the focus a bit really opened up a new way for interpreting not just the materials that I, I mentioned at the outset, but you know, a number of other um, sets of documents and, and practices that people were involved in that ranged from economic activity to political activity to religious activity. And a lot of times those were all blended to um, um, blended um, in the same instance. Yeah. You know, when we think about world history or, or the history of the West generally, this kind of future orientation is usually associated with uh, the onset of modernity. Do you think this really changes how we think about what modernity is or was? Well, to some extent. And, and I have to say that when I first um, first encountered those texts that I was discussing a minute ago, my initial reaction was, wow, these are really surprising, partly because they have this intense future orientation, partly because they're so focused on ideas of productivity and efficiency. They're so focused on the individual as the key unit. And as you were saying, those are um, qualities that we tend to associate with the modern condition. And so my initial reaction was, here is an alternative pathway to that present and to our present. But in the end, I decided that that was really a limiting framework because it didn't fully grapple with the way that these people were engaging with the future. It didn't explain how they got from their present into the future in a way that, um, yes, it was future oriented. Yes, it was focused on the individual in some ways. But it was also drawing intensely and heavily on tradition, whether those were traditional religious practices, um, political ideas, community customs. And so there's this really creative blending of past, present, and future in a way that I hadn't seen before I'm thinking through. And, and so in doing so, in this book, you present it as being about not just uh, how high intellectuals are talking about uh, time and the future and innovation, stuff like that, but popular classes as well. And um, in a certain sense, we know about um, either from the age of the conquest all the way, I guess, through the entirety of the colonial period, uh, we can find all of these sources that are about telling the story of the empire and um, imagining what the imperial future is from this sort of high intellectual perspective. But what you're trying to do is really um, investigate and unravel how how normal people think about time in the future. 
Can you tell me a bit about how you investigate, how you find that in the archive and how you create a narrative out of it? Sure. Um, so again, those of us who work on the period, an important um, development in the 18th century um, is a series of imperial reforms that we call the Bourbon Reforms. And a lot of times those are associated with some of the things that I was describing earlier. Um, more emphasis on squeezing productivity out of Spain's New World possessions. Um, sometimes more emphasis on the individual as an object of social reform. Um, and while all of that is true, um, I, I can go back to the example that we started with. In the case of the Brotherhoods, I was seeing a lot of those same ideas bubbling up from a different direction, um, not always in response to imperial reforms, but also um, developing at the local level. Um, and so I saw this in other domains as well. I, I have a chapter that looks at a culture of prediction um, that emerges in New Spain in the 17th and the 18th century, where individuals are demanding knowledge that is more precise, um, that can be acted on, that's useful. But uh, a lot of times that's coming from uh, the bottom up. So it's individuals who want better information about um, when to plant their crops, um, uh, when to trade. And so I was struck by um, uh, there was a culture of aspiration, an attempt to improve futures that was widespread and that was not always driven by the elite, and that there was, in fact, a lot of commonality between the things that, that um, non-elite people and elite learned people were saying in archival documents. And so I want to understand why that was. I think for a lot of people, the the importance of astrology and divination in, in Spanish colonial societies is probably quite unexpected. Can you describe a bit about what astrology meant in the colony and how it's coming out of a medieval uh, tradition of both in, in its practice and in its regulation and how this changes and is different when it gets brought to the new world and and um, and it spreads across these uh, Spanish American colonies. Sure. Um, so that that was another chapter where um, looking at documents um, really drove um, how I constructed the research program, um, the kinds of questions that I was asking, and and I guess fundamentally, it, I was um, puzzling over a paradox that I came across early on in my research for that chapter. So. As I was thinking about other practices of future making, um, astrology and prediction seemed like obvious ones. I knew that this was something that the Inquisition had regulated and investigated during the colonial period, even though it wasn't something that I had worked on previously. And so when I started looking through Inquisition files related to astrology, I was struck by something that, again, to me appeared as a paradox, but to maybe to seasoned researchers in that field wouldn't have appeared so at all. And that was um, sometimes in the same Inquisition volumes in Mexico City, I was coming across documents that, on the one hand, were records of the Inquisition and Inquisitors authorizing the publication of what we would call, and they called almanacs or calendars that predicted the weather the best times to plant, sometimes the best moment to do a medical procedure. 
and in these same volumes, lengthy, long investigations of people who were accused of practicing what appeared to me initially as a, the same sort of astrology, but was clearly unauthorized. And so sometimes these individuals who were trying to predict the future through astrological practices in the same way that the calendars and the almanacs were doing, um, you know, faced harsh punishment by the Inquisition. And so I was trying to understand, well, what's the distinction there? Because clearly there was one at the time, and it was not one that I, what was immediately apparent to me. And what does that distinction tell us about the culture of knowledge in the 17th and 18th century when these documents um, were produced? By the time that astrology gets to colonial Latin America, it had been uh, prescribed and regulated and policed by the Catholic Church for hundreds of years. Can you describe how the line between what is acceptable and unacceptable astrological practice and the line between what's a truthful and untruthful form of astrology changes as it develops in colonial Mexico? Sure. Yeah. So um, one important distinction for us moderns to make is that um, what we call astrology and we um, understand to be a pseudoscience and um, to be you know, generally an unauthorized way of predicting the future or a, and a faulty one. Um, in the period that we're talking about, astrology encompassed a broader range of things, not only that, but also what we would now call astronomy, so kind of a, the science of the stars and predicting the movement of heavenly bodies. Um, and in these uh, inquisitorial investigations about prediction, they made a distinction and this was true in early modern Europe as well, between what they called judicial or rational astrology, um, I'm sorry, um, rational or, or natural astrology and judicial astrology. Uh, on the one hand, natural or rational astrology was um, thinking about the way that the heavens might have produced general influences on the world. Judicial astrology, on the other hand, um, were, were the kinds of predictions that focused on specific individual or particular days and predicted the future with more granularity. And that was the distinction that they drew in these, um, in these investigations. If one was practicing this more refined, uh, and by refined I mean more granular and more particular form of astrology, it was subject to sanction. Whereas on the other hand, a more general prediction again, based on what we would call astrology, the position of the stars, that was okay. Um, and people in New Spain were surprisingly aware of this, what to us might seem like a very arcane and um, um, theoretical distinction. I find common people, not elites, um, not literate people necessarily, aware of these distinctions in far-flung places in colonial Mexico and New Spain. And they argued about were we on the right side of that boundary or the wrong side of that boundary? Yeah, and what made, you know, according to Catholic teaching, what's the, what makes one of those orthodox and not the other? Yeah, so uh, the, the key distinction is that the natural or rational astrology was not understood to violate core Catholic dogmas about divine intervention and free will, that humans have the ability to make choices in the world. Whereas, of course, uh, a very aggressive form of judicial astrology would limit both of those um, both of those qualities. It would it would obviously limit the 
ability of individuals to make choices in the world and it would violate that dogma. Uh, one of the chapters I found most interesting in this book and I really enjoyed was this one about um, debt and credit, which I think um, a lot of us wouldn't initially think about when we're thinking about how people are constructing futures for themselves. And uh, this this chapter really traces how prohibitions from the church against usury uh, change and new forms of uh, credit and uh, loaning money develop over the course of the colonial period. I'm interested about how this reflects a certain kind of tempor- temporality or uh, time sensibility that's inherent in what money is and how it moves in society. Sure. Yeah. So um, in the 16th century, um, there were forms of credit in New Spain. And so from the very beginning of the colonial period, not surprisingly, there's different forms of credit, but they tended to be more rigid. They were longer term loans. They were usually backed by real property. And over the long arc of the colonial period, we end up with a more flexible system of credit, um, shorter term loans, loans that are attached to a person rather than to real property. Um, sometimes more flexible rates of interest. Um, And those grow out of real economic needs for more economic flexibility, real economic needs of individuals who are starved for cash and need credit. And to some extent, those different forms of loans reflect a different temporal orientation. So that more um, flexibility in terms of the credit system gave people different ways to plan for their future, um, gave them different ways of projecting into an economic future, um, both in the short term, but also in the medium and the longer term. And you write that as we move from the late Middle Ages and into the early modern period and the beginning of Spanish colonialism, that the theory of money at the time is very much that it's this dead object and its value is inherent in the bullion that's that's in the coin itself. Can you explain how this theory of money and value worked and how it's a sense of time and temporality in and of itself? Sure. And, and here I'm really drawing off the work of other scholars, but in the 16th century leading into the colonial period, as you say, money was thought to be fixed in terms of its value. Um, the underlying, as you say, the underlying bullion, the gold or the silver was thought to have an essential, uh, an essence to it, an essential value. And so in that sense, it was literally out of time. It was timeless. It didn't change over the course of time. But in the 16th century, it becomes clear to many people, both in Europe and in the New World, but that's not the case at all. And that's prompted in, or that, that develops in part out of the massive flow of gold and then especially silver from the new world to other parts of the globe, in, um, in, including Europe, but also to China and to India, um, as silver is being produced on a really massive scale in the new world. And as that money flows to different places, of course, we know now um, that Uh, an increase in the supply of money is going to lead to inflation and a change in the value um, of of money. And so as individuals realized that in the 16th century, it started to erode that sense that money had an essential timeless value. And instead, it was understood to be something changeable, 
it was something that existed in the world subject to fluctuations um, over time. And so how does this affect uh, the forms of or the ways that people experience money and their lives in New Spain? Sure. Well, it, it, you know, of course, it's exposing them to what we would now call economic risk in new ways. But I think um, going back to our discussion of changing credit practices, it also leads to a, a recognition, um, an understanding and a demand for new economic interest instruments that would allow people to navigate this more complex, changing economic terrain. And um, can you explain more about how you see this developing, uh, both in mechanisms? So, you know, how are people getting credit and what do they need it for? And um, and who wants the to create these mechanisms and who wants to get the money from it, the, the debt? And, and what sorts of economic relations are coming out of this? Sure. So, it, you know, it's a complicated story. Um, and, you know, one of the interesting things for individuals who aren't studying New Spain or colonial Spanish America um, is that economic historians have shown that, in fact, these were quite cash-starved societies, which is surprising given that so much silver and gold was being produced, again, especially silver was being produced in these places. And so credit was really important for um the economic functioning of these places. And this is true all the way from very large scale transatlantic merchants. Yeah, maybe that's not surprising or that, that, that seems uh, kind of obvious, but down to really small scale um, peasant production in the countryside of new Spain. And so again, um, like my colleagues who work on this more directly have shown that, there was a lot of really exploitative credit practices, um, high rates of interest that were stepping outside of some of the some of the authorized forms of credit that we were talking about. But at the same time, um, individuals were were thirsty uh, for credit as well. So there's a complicated relationship for small scale producers. On the one hand, they needed credit to get to the next planting cycle, let's say, but at the same time, that credit could be um, very, very costly to them and put them in a really difficult economic position. So it's a, it's a complicated thing to talk about because on the one hand, individuals are navigating a really complex economic environment that um, sometimes needed more regulation. Um, but at the same time, getting rid of some of those, what we would call exploitative loans could actually put them in a worse position than having access to them. Yeah, and now similar to astrology, loans and and uh, banking is is heavily policed by the Catholic Church, uh, which has long had um, statutes against usury. How is that changing in New Spain as uh, this economic picture is developing? Sure. So one one of the interesting things I found in terms of credit practices was while um, while it's true that over time, and and by that I mean let's say moving into the later 18th century. And into the 19th century, even after um, once Mexico becomes independent, the Catholic Church is backing off somewhat on its regulation of usury. Um, I found that in some ways that was a result of um, individuals in the Mexican countryside and in Mexican cities demanding these different forms of credit um, and in a sense pushing the church away from regulation of economic activity. 
So in other words, what we see happening, um, not unlike the, the market for astrology that I was talking about earlier, is individuals in the countryside, again, not, not necessarily learned individuals, um, with a surprising amount of knowledge about very specific details of Catholic usury theory um, and really clear ideas about what their economic rights were. Um, and I see that as part of the engine for the church backing off on its regulation of, of usury and, and lending. So then when we bring these stories together, these storylines of, of banking, of religious, uh, personal religious experience and prediction and so forth, do you see there being a long delay change in how people experience time and how they think about the future over the course of Spanish imperialism? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's a paradox because on the one hand, I see individuals becoming more future oriented in the 18th century. And so in some ways that seems like a story that's consistent with the, um, the development of modernity in other places during this period. Um, but what I think is different is that the origin point, um, has to do with individuals dipping into their knowledge of tradition, of received wisdom, of local custom and repurposing those things in surprising ways. And so that's what I was seeing in this project again uh, and again as I move from domain to domain, whether it's um, religious practice, as you say, or economic um, activity. Yeah. Can you reflect for a moment about why, like kind of what that means to, for them to be drawing on tradition as opposed to what historians of, say, modern Europe might say about the development of a modern sense of time and of change? Sure. So. Here I'm in dialogue with people who've thought about that, the question of time and, and time as a historical concept. Um, Reinhard Kaselik is, is one, but the, there's others. And um, I was really inspired by some of that work um, insofar as it was thinking about time as a category for historical analysis. In other words, time is something that has a history like many other things, and it's something that we can trace over time. And we can think about changing historical sensibilities around time. On the other hand, a lot of that work sees the modern period um, and, and sees its, its really its definition as a moment when the past is no longer useful as a guide to the future. And that was the core paradox that I initially came across in those documents uh, about the religious brotherhoods. It just didn't seem to to fit. Instead, what I see emerging in New Spain and in early Mexico is individuals who are more intensely future-oriented, um, but without being modern, that is, without breaking from tradition and from the past. Instead, what they're doing repeatedly is dipping into tradition, dipping into received wisdom, dip, dipping into custom, and repurposing and refashioning it in ways that fits present circumstances. And you write in the in the introduction that um, these sorts of future making practices that you've excavated from the empire, uh, from the from the archive, excuse me, in colonial New Spain, were subsequently forgotten um, because of their incompatibility with the teleologies of modernity. Can you explain this and what it is that they were incompatible with, and then? 
And related to that, why does Latin America become associated with stagnant, a stagnant sense of time? Sure. Um, so as I mentioned in the introduction, there's a large body of scholarship and really excellent scholarship that's looking at um, the development of places like Mexico and Latin America in general in the 19th century, and sometimes from the lens of, of political science or, or political developments, sometimes from the lens of economic history and, and economic change in those places. And a lot of times the guiding question has been, um, why is it that when we compare Latin America or Mexico with other places, including the U.S. and the North Atlantic, that there's relative economic underdevelopment, let's say, in the 19th century, um, there's political turmoil and so forth. And so it's a, a, in a lot of ways, it's a lens of looking at um, a lag or, a, a, you know, in, a, in its worst form, a kind of backwardsness. Um, and I think those questions are fine to ask and it's led to some interesting answers, but it also can blind us to some of the things that I was seeing in an earlier period. And what I mean by that is that you know, and, I, and again, I think this will be maybe commonsensical and obvious to those of us who've worked in the archives during this period. But people were generally oriented around um, improving their futures. People were generally trying to aspire for better conditions for themselves and their families. Um, and so some of those stories and some of those sensibilities and attitudes towards um, towards the present and the future get lost when we are only looking in that other frame. So are there aspects of your book that we haven't covered in the interview that you want to make sure listeners know about? Well, I guess the, the one thing I would say is um, when I put together this project and framed it around the concept of individuals and communities relationship to time and then specifically the future, um, it meant that I was moving from chapter to chapter through a lot of different secondary literatures, some of them that we've talked about already. So the, there's a chapter that we were discussing on money and credit. There's a chapter on astrology and divination and other ones on religious practices. And it meant that I was reliant on and really lucky to be able to lean upon a lot of great secondary scholarship from colonial Latin America, from early modern Europe, um, and other places. And so, um, I, yeah, I just wanted to, to kind of flag that, that the book is, is able to engage these themes partly because of a lot of great work that's come, um, before, before me. So I, I just wanted to recognize that. Yeah. And that's a, a great reminder that, um, historical scholarship is very much in a sense, a collaborative production, uh, despite the fact that we, you know, personally author books and so forth. And it, it would appear to be the loneliest profession out there. Yeah. Um, so, uh, thank you so much. What are you working on next? So, um, a couple of things. One, I'm, I'm working on a, a manuscript of prediction and uh, future making from the early 19th century in Mexico. That's somewhat related uh, to the ideas in this project um, that uh, was produced by a priest in the early Republican period and making some really bold predictions about Mexico's political future, um, leaning on some of the same tools, uh, dipping into the past and, and forms of traditional um, interpretation and explanation 
that I discuss in this book. Um, and then I'm also working on a, a new project, a kind of exploratory project for a very different place, time period, and theme for me. It has to do with bioprospecting in the early 20th century Western Amazon and some of the relationships between U.S. pharmaceutical companies and those activities. Wow, that sounds extremely fascinating. I hope I get to interview you about that one when it comes out. Well, thanks very much, Lance. I really appreciated the chance to talk with you a bit. Yeah, thank you, Matt, and uh, uh, best of luck with the new project. <laughs>